1: I'm Malcolm Keating. Today we'll be talking to Eberhard Guhe, author of An Indian Theory of Defeasible Reasoning, The Doctrine of Upadi in the Upadi Dharpana, published in 2022 by Harvard University Press. A note about this conversation due to some technical difficulties between Singapore, where I'm located, and China, where Eberhard is, we're going to be doing something a little bit unusual. I've recorded my questions ahead of time, sent them over to Eberhard, and he answered, sent them over to me. So. With that little technical note, let's get started. Your book is a translation of an anonymous text written by an Indian philosopher focusing on logic and epistemology. Let's start with the big picture. What is the Upadi Dharpana, and why did you think it was important to translate it into English? We'll talk about the Upadi in detail, but here's a chance to give a first gloss.
0: The Upadi Dharpana is a sense-good work which probably dates from the 14th century. Only one manuscript of the text has been preserved, and it is available in the Bhandarkar Oriental Research Institute in Pune. The author is unknown. The title "Padi Darpana" means something like "mirror of the associate condition." Associate condition is my translation of the Sanskrit word "padi," and the word "mirror," which is my translation of the Sanskrit word "darpana." is probably meant to suggest that the Upadi dharvana provides a very precise explication of the concept of the Upadhi, similar to a mirror image. Upadi is a key concept of the theory of inference in Indian logic, especially in the works of logicians affiliated with a school of philosophy in ancient India called Nyaya. Nyaya can be tentatively translated as logic although it should be noted that the adherents of this school, the Nayaikas, were not only interested in logic. The school to which the Upadidarpana belongs is the successor of the old Nyaya school. It is called Navya that is, new logic. The Upadidarpana is an early Navya treatise. It probably predates Gangesha's Tattva Chintamani, which became seminal for the later development of the school. Inesh Chandra Bhattacharya mentions the Upadhi Dharpana in his encyclopedia History of Navyanyaya and Mithila, dating from the 1950s. And in the 1970s, Erich Frauwalner notes in one of his monographs that it would be important to have an edition and a translation of the Upadhi Dharpana in order to promote our understanding of the early stages of the development of Navyanyaya. My book, which contains the first published edition and translation of the Upadhi Darpana, is an attempt to fill this academic void. However, the Upadhi is more than just a piece of jigsaw in the history of Navjanyaya. It abounds in logically interesting ideas, which deserve to be brought to the attention of present-day logicians. The doctrine of the Upadi is in effect a theory of defeasible reasoning, and as such it is a precursor of a vibrant area of research in Western philosophy and in AI. Some other ingenious insights of the author of the Upadi Dharpana are related to property theories, especially property adaptations of well-founded and non-well-founded set theories. A logically very intriguing aspect of the Upadhi Dharpana is the author's attempt to define all candidate parties by means of a general defining characteristic in Sanskrit Samanya Lakshana, which is a property of itself. By advocating a non-well-founded property concept, he breaks a taboo in Yaya, according to which self-dependence, in Sanskrit Admacharya, is denigrated as a kind of absurdity. No such discussion concerning the problem of foundation in the Navya Nyaya logic of property and location is to be found in the section on Upadi in Gangesha's Tattva Chintamani.
1: How did you come to be interested in Indian philosophy in general and in Nyaya more specifically?
0: I became interested in Indian philosophy when I was studying at the University of Munster in Germany. I was enrolled in an MA program with Indology as a major and English Literature and Philosophy as minors. In the beginning of my studies, I was absolutely fascinated by the Sanskrit introductory course and the Sanskrit reading classes. But I was not yet contemplating any particular area of specialization. I was also very interested in Sinhalese, for example. The curriculum for English literature as a minor consisted almost entirely of compulsory courses which were designed to enhance the student's language proficiency. With a few exceptions, these courses were actually a bit boring for me, but ultimately they proved to be beneficial since I'm now teaching in English and I publish primarily in English. In philosophy, I was immediately hooked up on the logic classes. When I told my Sanskrit teacher, Professor Klaus Rüpping, about my keen interest in logic, he encouraged me to specialize in Indian logic and drew my attention to the book Materials for the Study of Nyaya Logic by Daniel H. H. Ingalls. Incidentally, this book was also published in the Harvard Oriental series, the same series in which my book has been published. I studied Ingalls' book carefully, but I did not yet have any clear idea in what way the type of logic concocted by the Naviyanayakas dovetails with what I had learned in my logic classes. In order to to acquire a solid background in Indian philosophy, I followed Professor Riping's advice and removed the University of Vienna, which is a hub for the study of Indian philosophy. Since I was committed to do interdisciplinary research on Indian logic, I changed my minors into Logic and Mathematics. The MA program with Indology as a major and Logic and Mathematics as minors was perfectly tailored to my research interests. When I graduated, I had a much clearer idea about the relation between the logic of Nyaya and modern logical theories.
1: For listeners who aren't already familiar with Indian philosophy, can you say a bit about who Nyaya and Navya Nyaya philosophers are, and why they're interested in logic and epistemology? To what extent are there practical or soteriological goals for their inquiry into these topics?
0: Nyaya is one of the so-called Brahmanical schools of classical Indian philosophy, who accept the authority of the Vedas. Doxographic sources name a certain Gautama as the founder of the school. The oldest extant Nyaya text, the Nyaya Sutra, is attributed to him. It dates from around 200 of common era and probably derives from a conflation of a theory of debate with a simple doctrine of final release and some metaphysical tenets. Most of the later Nyayaikas wrote commentaries or sub-commentaries on the Nyaya Sutra. Logic, epistemology, and metaphysics became the key concerns of the school. As realists, Nayaikas postulated the existence of universals and substances, like for example, selves. They are proponents of a system of ontological categories, which they had inherited from their sister school, the Vaishishika, and which was under constant attack from the Buddhists. Nyaya is also noted as a school of philosophy who fabricated sophisticated arguments for the existence of a Hindu god, thus rivaling atheist philosophers like Buddhists and Nirmansakas, that is, Hindu ritualists. Navya Nyaya, which we may tentatively translate as new logic, is the name of the successor of the old Nyaya school. The beginnings of Navya Nyaya date back to the 12th or 13th century, with authors such as Shashadara and Manikanta Mishra. There is however good reason to believe that the advent of Navya is already foreboded in the works of Udayana, 11th century, who is mostly still considered to be a representative of the old Nyaya school. Gangeshas Magnum Opus Tatvachintamani, 14th century, was seminal for the development of the typical style of the Navya approach to logical and epistemological issues. The school reached its peak in the works of authors such as Raghunatha Shiromani 16th century, Jagadisha and Gadatara, 17th century, and has remained active through to the present day, although the scholarly work of contemporary navyanayakas is mostly confined to exegetical endeavours. A major concern of the Navianayaikas, which distinguishes them from representatives of the old Nyaya school, consists in their effort to analyze relations with utmost precision. This preeminence of relations in the Navya Nayakas analysis of the objective content of verbalized and unverbalized cognitions was conducive to a more abstract worldview. Instead of focusing on concrete particulars as the members of a relation, Navya Nayakas used to highlight the importance of relations themselves as integrative components of empirical reality, while conceiving of the relata as varying instantiations. Thus, they were able to formulate law-like statements. Some of them are equivalents of well-known theorems in modern mathematical logic, such as, for example, the Morgan's laws. The Darpana also deals at length with a problem concerning a particular relation, namely the relation between a property and its locus. What induces the author to think about this relation is the question whether the property which he regards as the defining characteristic of the Upadi can be a property of itself. Does the assumption of self-resident properties lead to any inconsistencies? A similar issue, the so-called problem of foundation, has been raised in mathematics with regard to the question whether a set can be an element of itself. This close affinity to problems discussed in modern formal or mathematical logic distinguishes Navya Nyaya from all other schools in classical Indian philosophy.
1: What is the Nyaya conception of the five-membered inference? You talk about this in relationship to deduction and induction, monotonicity and non-monotonicity in the book. Perhaps you can explain how you understand it as relating to these categories. Um, And an example of a good inference would help.
0: The so-called five-membered inference consists of the following five members. The thesis, three members which are supposed to corroborate the claim formulated in the thesis, and the conclusion which restates the thesis as a result of the inference. Here is the stock example of a five-membered inference. First member, this mountain possesses fire. Second member, for it possesses smoke. Third member, whatever possesses smoke, possesses fire, like the kitchen. Wherever there is no fire, there is also no smoke, such as in a big lake. Fourth member, this mountain is so, that is, it possesses smoke as a token of fire. Fifth member, therefore it is so, that is, the mountain possesses fire. In this example, the mountain functions as the subject of the inference. Fire is the probandum a property which, according to the first member, can be proved to be present on the subject of the inference. Smoke is the probands or prover, a property whose presence on the subject of the inference is an established fact, according to the second member of the inference. The probands functions as an indicator of the probandum. According to the third member, this is possible because there is a universal relation called pervasion in Sanskrit Vyapti between the probands and the probandum in the sense that every locus of the probands is a locus of the probandum. The reference to examples in the third member indicates that the cognition of a pervasion involves an inductive generalization the cognition is supported by wide experience of positive correlations such as smoke and fire on a kitchen hearth and negative correlations such as absence of smoke on a lake whether is absence of fire thus the cognition of a pervasion is the result of an extrapolation from certain known cases, that is, it involves an inductive leap to all unobserved cases past, present and future, including the case at issue in an inferential situation. The fourth member, this mountain is so, associates the Provence's presence on the subject of the inference with the pervasion relation And it is this that finally gives rise to the conclusion expressed in the fifth member, that is, the cognition that the probandum is present on the subject of the inference. Nayaikas insist that a five-membered inference can only be accepted as a means of valid cognition if each of the five members expresses a warranted belief. As reliabilists, Nayakas accept a belief as a warranted if and only if it is the result of some reliable process. An inference in which one of the five members fails to meet this criterion is not a means of valid cognition. It is rather a mere pseudo inference. Hence an inference's being a means of vetted cognition is not the same as deductive validity. An inference can be deductively valid, even if some of the premises are known to be false. This does not mean that the concept of deductive validity is inapplicable to a five-membered inference. Actually, the third member, which accounts for its inductive character, is embedded in a deductive fabric. Thus, the five-membered inference can be turned into a purely deductive procedure if you regard only the result of the inductive process of determining the pervasion at issue as a part of the inference, not the process itself. In my book, I show how the deductive content of a five-membered inference can be captured by means of a first-order formalization. A few simple rules of first-order logic are sufficient to derive the conclusion from the preceding three members. Nevertheless, it should be understood that for the Navianayakas, the inductive leap, which gives rise to the cognition of the pervasion, is an integral part of the five-membered inference. It transforms the latter into a defeasible or non-monotonic type of inference. Additional information may cast the inductive leap into doubt and the Upadi is a part of this additional information. Therefore, some authors have characterized the Upadi as a defeater in the sense of John L. Pollock's theory of defeasible reasoning.
1: One of the main themes of your introduction is that an Upadi is not exactly the same thing as a defeater in the sense of John Pollock's theory of defeasible reasoning. Why is that? An example of an Upadi might help here.
0: Now, what is an Upadi? An upadi is said to be a vitiator in sense dushana, of pseudo pervasions and hence of pseudo inferences. However, the vitiating function is rather attributed to the Upadi's absence in certain loci. According to the Upadi Darpana, an Upadi vitiates pseudo pervasions or pseudo inferences by exposing the probands as a special type of pseudo probands, namely the so called conditional probands. This is a type of pseudoprobance which only in combination with an upadhi allows us to infer the probandum. Here is a classical example. Although smoke is supposed to be pervaded by fire, the putative pervasion of fire by smoke is unwarranted. The sample from which this pseudopervasion might be extrapolated turns out to be not a fair one if we find out that in the case of all hitherto observed instances of fire, The co-occurrence with smoke was owing to the presence of an upadi, namely wet fuel. Wherever there is fire without wet fuel, as in the case of molten metal, there is no smoke. Of course, the identification of a counterexample would suffice to refute the universality of a putative pervasion. The upadi is supposed to account for the existence of counterexamples. The reason why there are loci of fire without smoke is that fire produces smoke only in the presence of wet fuel. Wet fuel functions here as a so-called certainty party. It is surely absent from a certain locus of the proband's fire. Molten metal is such a locus. And in the case of the absence of wet fuel from a locus of fire, we can be sure about the absence of the probandum smoke from that locus. However, even if we are not sure about the Upadi's absence from a locus of the probands, or about the absence of the Probandum from a locus of the Probans where the Upadi is missing, the latter could still be regarded as a vitiator in Navyanyaya. An Upadi is a so called dubious Upadi if there are equally good reasons for and against believing that it is absent from a certain locus of the Probans or if there are equally good reasons for and against believing that the probandum is absent from any locus of the probands where the upadhi is missing. Such a dubious upadhi can vitiate, because the Navya Nayaka's way of resolving epistemic ties dovetails with the behavior of a skeptical reasoner, who acknowledges epistemic ignorance and withholds belief rather than choosing randomly, like a credulous reasoner. Thus, the dubious opati vitiates in the sense that it mandates not to draw any conclusion, neither the conclusion which consists in the pervasion at issue and which is inferred from the claim of evidential support as a premise, nor the conclusion expressed in the fifth member of an inference. The idea that the the theory of the opati can be assimilated to John L. Pollock's theory of defeasible reasoning hails from Stephen Phillips. However, the junctures between both theories have only tentatively been explained by Phillips. In my book, I try to demonstrate in greater detail in what way Pollock's terminology can be applied to the conceptual framework of the doctrine of the Upadi. Phillips calls the Upadi a defeater, although he is well aware that an Upadi is not exactly the same as a defeater in the sense of Pollock's terminology. A defeater defeats a so-called prima facie reason. Both defeaters and prima facie reasons are mental states, or to be more precise, beliefs. However, Pollock notes that, quote, when the constituents of arguments are belief states, we can just as well represent the beliefs in terms of the propositions believed, and doing so makes the arguments look more familiar, unquote. Hereafter, I will therefore talk about a defeater or a prima facie reason in the sense of a proposition as the content of a belief. Now, what kind of propositions are prima facie reasons and defeaters? Let us begin with prima facie reasons, which are targeted by a defeater. Prima facie reasons are defeasible. Pollock introduces the concept of a defeasible reason in the following way, quote, There are two kinds of reasons, defeasible and non-defeasible. Non-defeasible reasons are those reasons that logically entail their conclusions. For instance, P and Q is a non-defeasible reason for P. Such reasons are conclusive reasons. Everyone has always recognized the existence of non-defeasible reasons. But defeasible reasons are a relatively new discovery in philosophy as well as in allied disciplines like AI. P is a defeasible reason for Q just in case P is a reason for Q, but additional information may destroy the reason connection. Such reasons are called prima facie reasons. Unquote. More precisely, Pollock defines prima facie reasons in the following way. Quote, P is the prima facie reason for S to believe Q, if and only if P is a reason for S to believe Q, and there is an R such that R is logically consistent with P, but P and R is not a reason for S to believe Q. The consistency condition ensures here that the existence of such an R would not be trivially fulfilled. If R would not have to be consistent with P, one might, for example, choose not P as a substitution instance of R. In this case, P and R is false, and then it is trivially not a reason for S to believe Q. Hence, without the consistency condition, every reason would be a prima facie reason. Let us now look at Pollock's definition of the concept of a defeater. Quote, R is a defeater for P as a prima facial reason for Q if and only if P is a reason for S to believe Q and R is logically consistent with P, but P and R is not a reason for S to believe Q. Hollock illustrates the concept of a prima facial reason and the concept of a defeater by means of an inference which is considerably weaker than a sound five membered inference. It is not based on induction, but rather on a kind of rule of thumb, for example, some things looking red to me may justify me in believing that it is red. But if I subsequently learn that the object is illuminated by red lights, and I know that that can make things look red when they are not, then I cease to be justified in believing that the object is red, unquote. Let us refer to the apparently red-colored object in Pollock's inference by means of the variable x. Then the premise can be rendered as x looks red to me, and the conclusion can be rendered as x is red. The premise is here a prima facie reason, and it is defeated by x is illuminated by red lights. In order to function as a defeater, this proposition needs to be conjoined with a background information which can be rendered as being illuminated by red lights, can make things look red when they are not. Now it is obvious that something like wet fuel, the stock example of an upadi as a vitiator of the pseudo-pervasion of fire by smoke, cannot be a defeater. It is neither a proposition nor a belief. Nevertheless, there are two genuine equivalents of a defeater a la Pollock in the theory of the upadi, Namely, the proposition there is a locus of the probands where the upadi is missing, and the proposition the inferential subject is a locus of the probands where the upadi is missing. The upadi is only a part of these propositions, and it is the upadi's absence which defeats, not its presence. Both propositions can serve as defeaters of the claim of evidential support as the prima facie reason from which a pervasion is inductively inferred. In order to function as defeaters, they have to be conjoined with the background information. Every locus of the probands where the upadi is missing is a locus of the probands where the probandum is missing. In combination with this background information, either of these two propositions entails that there is a locus of the probands where the probandum is missing. This is simple first order logic. If every f is g and there is an f, then there is a g. Moreover, if every F is g and s is an F, then there is a g, namely s. Hence, if every locus of the probands where the upadi is missing is a locus of the probands where the probandum is missing, and there is a locus of the probands where the upadi is missing, a locus which may or may not be identical to the inferential subject, then there is a locus of the probands where the probandum is missing. The existence of a locus of the probands where the probandum is missing contradicts the assumed pervasion, which is inductively inferred from the evidential support as a prima facie reason. Hence, either of the two above-mentioned propositions is actually a defeater of this prima facial reason, since the conjunction of either of them with the background information and the prima facial reason is no longer a reason to believe the conclusion which consists in the pervasion at issue. Nevertheless, the conjunction of either of the two propositions with the background information is consistent with the claim of evidential support. This means that the proposition, there is a locus of the probands where the upadie is missing, and the proposition, the inferential subject is a locus of the probands where the upadie is missing, are defeaters according to Pollock's definition. Both propositions can also serve as defeaters of another prima facie reason, namely the prima facie reason which consists in the conjunction of the second and the third member of a five membered inference. These two members are all that is needed to infer the fifth member, the conclusion of a five membered inference. Let us look at the stock example of a five membered inference. According to the second member, there is smoke fuming from the mountain. According to the third member, there is a sample of objects which exhibit the co-presence and the co-absence of smoke and fire, and from this evidential support we infer inductively that smoke is pervaded by fire. The fourth member is is only an intermediate step. It restates the second member and conjoins it with the observation that the mountain is an instance of the pervasion of smoke by fire. Thus, it follows deductively from the second member and the conclusion of the inductive inference in the third member by means of universal instantiation and conjunction introduction. The fifth member follows deductively from the fourth by means of conjunction elimination and modus ponens. Thus, the fourth member is an indefeasible reason for the fifth. However, the conjunction of the second and the third member is a defeasible reason for the fifth because of the inductive inference, which is a part of the third member. Now, here is the context in which such a prima facie reason is defeated by means of the above-mentioned type of propositions. Let us assume that an agent A observes fire on a distant mountain in the dark and concludes that there is also smoke hidden in the dark. He relies on the five-membered inference as a knowledge source. However, A's inference involves the pseudo pervasion of fire by smoke. Hence, against the backdrop of the information that every locus of fire where wet fuel is missing is a locus of fire where smoke is missing, the above mentioned propositions with wet fuel as neopadi defeat the conjunction of the second member, that is, there is fire on the mountain, and the third member, that is, There is a sample of objects which exhibit the co-presence and the co-absence of fire and smoke, and the pervasion of fire by smoke is inductively inferable from this evidential support. The consistency condition in Pollock's definition of a defeater is not violated. The conjunction of either of the two defeaters with the background information entails that there is a counterexample to the pervasion of fire by smoke, which may or may not be identical to the mountain. This is nevertheless consistent with the third member, which merely claims that the pervasion of fire by smoke is inductively inferable from a sample of evidential support. Moreover, if the prima facie reason is conjoined with either of the two defeaters plus the background information, it is no longer a reason to believe the conclusion which consists in the fifth member, there is smoke on the mountain. In the light of the background information, the defeater, the mountain, is a locus of fire where wet fuel is missing, even entails that the conclusion is false. In the light of the background information, the defeater, there is a locus of fire where wet fuel is missing, entails that fire is not pervaded by smoke. The fifth member may or may not be true, but since the defeater discredits the pervasion's function as a warrant, the fifth member appears to be unsubstantiated. So, these are genuine defeaters in the sense of Pollock's definition. One may wonder whether there is any mentioning of such defeaters in the original sources. Actually, there is. Gangesha defines an upadi in the following way, quote, That is an upadi due to whose deviation from the probands, the probands deviates from the probandum, unquote. Deviation is the antonym of pervasion. F deviates from G if and only if there is a counterexample to the pervasion of F by G. Gangesha's definition can be analyzed into two propositions. First, the Upadi deviates from the Probands, that is, it does not pervade the Probands, which means there is a locus of the Probands where the Upadi is missing. This is exactly one of the above mentioned defeaters. Second, the Upadi's deviation from the Probands entails the deviation of the Probands from the Probandum. In the light of some other passages in Gangesha's account of the theory of the Upadi, this is to be understood as follows. Every counterexample to the pervasion of the Probands by the, by the Upadi is a counterexample to the pervasion of the Probands by the Probandum, which means every locus of the Probands where the Upadi is missing is a locus of the Probands where the Probandum is missing. This is exactly the background information, which warrants the functionality of the first part of Gangesha's definition as a defeater. What about the other defeater, that is, the proposition, the inferential subject is a locus of the probands, where the Upali is missing? In the Upali Dapana, the author characterizes this proposition in such a way that it clearly functions as a defeater in the sense of Pollock's definition. Quote, If an upadi is not present on this inferential subject, then it, that is, the property of being a vitiator, amounts to the fact that the absence of that, that is, the absence of the upadi from the inferential subject, proves the absence of the probandum from the inferential subject, because of the pervadedness by the absence of the probandum resident in that absence of the upadi, unquote. The author alludes here to the background information when he talks about, quote, the pervadedness by the absence of the probandum resident in that absence of the upadi." unquote. That is, the background information consists in the fact that the absence of the upadi is pervaded by the absence of the probandum, which means every locus where the upadi is missing is a locus where the probandum is missing. This formulation is stricter than the one chosen by Gangesha, since it excludes the possibility of a mere pervasion in the range of the probands, otherwise it is the same. However, in other passages, the author of the Upadhi-Darpana observes that a broader formulation of the background information, such as the one chosen by Gangesha, would be sufficient to ensure the defeater's functionality. If the present defeater is conjoined with the background information, it, quote, proves the absence of the probandum from the inferential subject, unquote. That is, it demonstrates that the fifth member of a five-membered inference is false. This is exactly the sense in which the present defeater defeats the prima facie reason, which consists in the conjunction of the second and the third member.
1: You distinguish between rebutting and undercutting defeaters throughout. What is this distinction and how does it relate to the Upadi?
0: According to Pollock, there are two types of defeaters. A defeater rebuts or undercuts a prima facie reason. He defines rebutters and undercutters as follows Quote, R is a rebutting defeater for P as a prima facie reason for Q, if and only if R is a defeater and R is a reason for believing not Q. Unquote. Thus, a rebutter is a reason for believing the negation of the conclusion which is drawn from the rebutted prima facie reason. Quote, R is an undercutting defeater for P as a prima facie reason for S to believe Q, if and only if R is a defeater, and R is a reason for denying that P wouldn't be true unless Q were true. Unquote. Denying that P wouldn't be true unless Q were true means to claim that P can be true, even though Q is false. The undercutter attacks only the connection between the undercut prima facie reason and the conclusion which is drawn from the letter. Let us look again at Pollock's example, X is red because it looks red to me. Pollock's defeater, X is illuminated by red lights, is an undercutter, Quote. This is a defeater, but it is not a reason for denying that X is red. Red things look red in red light too. Instead, this is a reason for denying that X wouldn't look red to me unless it were red. Unquote. In the theory of the Upadi, we find both rebutters and undercutters. Let us first look at the defeater. The inferential subject is a locus of the probands where the Upadi is missing. This defeater rebuts the claim of evidential support as a prima facial reason for a pervasion. If it is conjoined with the background information, every locus of the probans where the upadi is missing is a locus of the probans where the probandum is missing, it entails that there is a counterexample to the pervasion at issue. Moreover, it rebuts the conjunction of the second and the third member of a five member inference as a prima facial reason for the fifth member. If it is conjoined with the same background information as before, it entails that the fifth member of the inference at issue is false. Let us now look at the defeater. There is a locus of the probands where the upadi is missing. This defeater also rebuts the claim on evidential support as a prima facie reason for a pervasion. If it is conjoined with the same background information as before, it entails that there is a counterexample to the pervasion at issue. Moreover, it undercuts the conjunction of the second and the third member of a five-membered inference as the prima facie reason for the fifth member. If it is conjoined with the same background information as before, it is a reason for denying that the conjunction of the second and the third member wouldn't be true unless the fifth member were true. The conjunction of the second and the third member may well be true, even though the fifth member is false.
1: Even though we don't know who the author of this text is, we can place the text and its ideas in relationship to some other major thinkers. who we'll also talk about logic and epistemology. What is different about this text in relationship to other important Nyaya philosophers like, for example, Udayana and Gangesha?
0: The Upadhi is a kind of maverick treatise among the works of Nayaikas and Navya Naya because it deals extensively with a topic which was totally neglected by other Upadi theorists, namely the definition of the Upadi by means of a so-called general defining characteristic, in Sanskrit, Samani Lakshana. This is a property of all candidate Upadis. It excludes everything which can never be used as an Upadi with respect to any influence. By advocating a general defining characteristic of the Upadi, which is a property of itself, the author of the Upadi Dharpana even breaks a taboo in Yaya, since self-residence is an instance of self-dependence, Sanskrit Atmarsaya, and self-dependence was regarded as a kind of absurdity in Yaya. Apart from a general defining characteristic, the Upadhi Dharpana also provides a so-called specific defining characteristic, Sanskrit vishesha Lakshana, of the Upadi. It characterizes an upadi relative to a pair of probands and probandum. This is the standard way of defining the upadi in Yaya and in Navayana. However, the specification of the upadi's relation to probands and probandum was discussed controversially. Udayana's pioneering attempt to define the upadi by means of a specific defining characteristic is mentioned in the Upadi Darpana, but the author does not endorse it. According to Udayana, an Upadi has to meet the following two criteria. First, it does not pervade the probands. Second, it pervades the probandum. The first criterion, the non-pervasion of the probands, means that there is a locus of the probands where the upadi is missing. Hence, the first criterion fits the profile of one of the before-mentioned defeaters. <coughs> The proposition expressing the upadi's absence in the locus of the probandum may actually serve as a defeater if Udayana's second criterion is warranted. The second criterion, the upadi's pervasion of the probandum, means that every locus of the probandum is a locus of the upadi. This can be reformulated by means of the law of contraposition as follows: Every locus where the upadi is missing is a locus where the probandum is missing. If this is true, then it is also true that every locus of the probands where the upadhi is missing is a locus of the probands where the probandum is missing. Thus, Udayana's second criterion implies the above-mentioned background information, which needs to be conjoined with the first criterion in order to ensure that the first criterion entails the non-pervasion of the probands by the probandum. The non pervasion of the probands by the probandum is the negation of the conclusion which is drawn from the claim of evidential support as a prima facie reason, and it accounts for the possibility that the first criterion may serve as a reason for denying that the conjunction of the second and the third member of a 5 member inference would not be true unless the fifth member were true. The fifth member can be regarded as the conclusion drawn from the conjunction of the second and the third member as a prima facie reason. Hence, by conjoining the first criterion and the background information with either of these two prima facie reasons, we obtain a conjunction which is not a reason to believe the conclusion drawn from the prima facie reason. Hence, Diana's first criterion qualifies as a defeater, with the second criterion as the supporting background information. As we have just seen, Diana's second criterion entails the required background information a broader formulation of the second criterion would be sufficient. Hence, according to Gangesha, the second criterion should be modified in the sense that the upadhi does not need to pervade the entire probandum. The upadhi's pervasion of the probandum in the range of the probands yields the desired result. A pervasion of the probandum in the range of the probands means that every locus of the probands where the upadhi is missing is a locus of the probands, where the probandum is missing. This is exactly the above-mentioned background information. Thus, according to Gangesha, an upadi has to meet the following criteria of a specific defining characteristic. First, it does not pervade the probands. Second, it pervades the probandum in the range of the probands, in the sense that it pervades at least the probandum in the range of the probands. Gangesha's revision of Udayana's second criterion was probably inspired by some early Nagyanayakas, such as, for example, Tapakara Upadhyaya. They had already suggested formulations which broaden the second criterion in the same way. These pre Gangesha revisions of Udayana's second criterion are mentioned in the Upadidāpana, and the author adopts the idea of the admissibility of a restricted pervasion in his own specific defining characteristic. However, the Upadidapana's version of the second criterion is stricter than Gangesha's, because the Upadidarpana includes another specification which takes its cue from Nayakas such as Baraja and Mishra. These late Nayakas insisted on a coextensive pervasion, Sanskrit Samavyapti of the Probandum by the Upadi, that is, the Probandum was supposed to be pervaded by the Upadi and vice versa. Thus, according to the Upadī Dharpana, an Upadī has to meet the following criteria of a specific defining characteristic. First, it does not pervade the probands. Second, it pervades the probandum coextensively in the range of the probands. The purpose of the requirement of a symmetric pervasion of the probandum by the Upadī in the range of the probands is to ensure that the upadi can function as both a vitiator and a corrector of pseudo pervasions and pseudo-influences. If the probance is incapable of securing the probandum of its own accord, its co-occurrence with the co-extensively pervading upadi warns the presence of the probandum, since co-extensively pervading upadi and the probandum occur always in tandem. Of course, this idea of correcting a pseudo pervasion by means of an upadi is only feasible if probands and probandum have at least some loci in common. Wet fuel, for example, fits the profile of the upadi dharpana's definition of an upadi in relation to fire as the probands and smoke as the probandum. Wet fuel pervades smoke coextensively in the range of fire. Hence, wherever fire co occurs with wet fuel, there is smoke. For Gangesha, who does not include the condition of a coextensive pervasion in his definition, an upadi is a vitiator, regardless of any potential utility as a corrector. Thus some properties which function as vitiators but fail to function as correctors are regarded as genuine upadis by Gangesha, whereas the Upadidarpana classifies them as so called pseudo upadis. But why should the upadhi also be a corrector? According to the Upadi darpana, the characterization of the upadhi as a corrector is a means to ensure that genuine pervasions and inferences based on genuine pervasions cannot be vitiated by an Upadi. Let us look at the example of the inference of fire from smoke on a distant mountain. The property being different from the mountain does not pervade the probands, since the mountain is a locus of smoke, but not a locus of the property being different from the mountain. Moreover, we can inductively infer that this property pervades the probandum in the range of the probands, since the evidential support comprises only loci where smoke and fire are known to co-occur, and this excludes the mountain. All other loci, where smoke and fire co-occur, are loci of the property being different from the mountain. Hence, this property also pervades the probandum fire in the range of the probance smoke. That is, it can be regarded as a upadi party, according to Gangesha's definition. A kind of projectability constraint for inductively inferable properties seems to be called for in order to prevent the property being different from the mountain from functioning as as a pervader of fire in the range of smoke. However, the author of the Upadi Dharpana has apparently no misgivings about the projectability of the property being different from the mountain. He is more concerned about the classification of this property as an Upadi, The symmetric pervasion of the probandum by the upadi in the range of the probands is at least a necessary condition for the upadi's utility as a corrector. However, it is not a sufficient one. Although the property being different from the mountain does not pervade the entire probandum fire coextensively, it does pervade fire coextensively in the range of the probands smoke. Wherever there is fire and smoke, there is the property being different from the mountain as confirmed by the evidential support. Wherever there is the property being different from the mountain and smoke, there is fire. Nevertheless, we would hardly conceive of the property being different from the mountain as a corrector here. Nothing needs to be corrected in the case of the genuine pervasion of smoke by fire. The property being different from the mountain does not have the function of bolstering the provence smoke in such a way that it is capable of securing the provandum fire. It is irrelevant to the purpose of securing the probandum.
1: Since we've been using categories like inductive, deductive, defeaters, and so on, some methodological questions. Why do you think formulating Nyaya philosophy in these modern terms is helpful? And what is your goal in designing axiomatic systems using modern logical tools like set theory?
0: Modern logic offers very refined, analytic tools, which can be fruitfully used for exegetical purposes. Explicating the ideas of Indian logicians of the classical era by means of these tools serves to provide a clearer, more precise account of the contents of the primary sources. This is one of the reasons why I prefer to work interdisciplinarily. Moreover, I am strongly committed to render the achievements of classical Indian logic accessible to contemporary logicians, without any Indological background. In order to communicate with them, I have to refer to a conceptual framework which they are familiar with. Near translations won't help, because the jargon in which the ancient texts are formulated is rather obscure from the point of view of the non-specialist. In Western logic, there is often no exact counterpart of a concept pertaining to the Indian tradition. The concept of the Upadhi is a good example, as we have seen. What plays a role here is the fact that the tradition of Indian and Western logic developed independently of each other. Nevertheless, they are not incommensurable, as we have also seen in the case of the doctrine of the Upadhi. Studying classical Indian logic from an interdisciplinary perspective in the way I do it can help to highlight the momentousness of the achievements of Indian logicians of the classical era. A contemporary logician could easily afford to ignore the Indian tradition of logic if it were nothing more than some kind of idiosyncratic scholasticism. However, now and again it turns out that the ideas of the Indian logicians of the classical era verge on highly advanced modern theories. Thus, I hope that my research will help logicians to appreciate the contribution of the works of classical Indian logic to the development of logic in world history. Finally, an appraisal of the transnational historical significance of the Indian tradition of logic should also include an investigation of its robustness. Modern logic relies on the axiomatic method as a means to verify a given proposition. It is mostly far from obvious what kind of axiomatic system can be used as a framework for a formal proof of a proposition which some Indian logician of the classical era believed to be true. Occasionally, a ready-made system designed by a modern logician for some other purpose is equipped with the appropriate means of expression and a set of axioms which is consistent with whatever else this Indian logician was committed to subscribe to. In other cases, we have to modify a ready-made axiomatic system and tailor it to the purpose of checking the intuitions of a representative of the classical era of Indian logic. In my book, I demonstrate the utility of a certain extension of George Bieler's Property Theory T1 for the purpose of proving an equation which most Navianayaikas believe to be true, namely, the absence of the difference from an F is identical to Fness. Another example of a fruitful application of the axiomatic methods is my proof of the proposition which states the self-residence of the general defining characteristic of the Upadhi.
1: One result of considering the upadi dharpana in relationship to modern logical categories is the conclusion that its author allows for non-well-founded properties. So, he might not have accepted the axiom of regularity for his system. What does that mean for the Upadi understanding of an Upadi? In other words, what is the relationship between the concept of non well foundedness and issues in understanding defeaters?
0: The non well founded property concept advocated by the author of the Upadi Dharpana is motivated by his quest for a general defining characteristic of the Upadi. This is the property of all candidate upadis. It excludes everything which can never be used as an upadi in any inference. According to the Upadi d'Arpana, the property of being present somewhere and absent somewhere else is peculiar to all upadis. Hence, the author enunciates it as a general defining characteristic of the upadi. In order to see that this property actually characterizes all and only upadis, we have to take into account the upadis' specific defining characteristic. Any of the above-mentioned versions of the specific defining characteristic can be used to motivate the dāpana's general defining characteristic. According to the first criterion of the specific defining characteristic, an upadi does not pervade the probands. Hence, it must be absent from some locus. According to the second criterion of the specific defining characteristic, an upadi pervades the entire probandum or at least the probandum in the range of the probands. This means that every locus of the co-presence of probands and probandum is a locus of the co-presence of probands and upadi. Such a universal statement might be merely vacuously true. However, Nayaikas and Navya insist that a genuine pervasion needs to be associated with existential import. Hence, the upadi's pervasion of the entire probandum, or at least the probandum in the range of the probands, implies that there is a locus of the co-presence of probands and probandum. And this again implies that there is also a locus of the co-presence of probands and upadi. For if every f is a g, and there is an f, then there is a g. Since there is a locus of the co-presence of probands and upadi, the upadi is present somewhere. Thus, according to the first and the second criterion of the specific defining characteristic of an upadi, an upadi is something which is present somewhere and absent somewhere else. That is, something which possesses the general defining characteristic being present somewhere and absent somewhere else. This property is itself present and absent somewhere else. It is present in wet fuel, because wet fuel is present in some loci and absent in some loci and what fuel is actually something that can be used as an opadi, as we have seen. However, the general defining characteristic is absent from anything which is universally present or universally absent. The property nameability, for example, is universally present since everything is nameable, hence it cannot be used as an opadi in any inferential context. In the Navya ontology, there are also universally absent entities, such as the ether and other eternal substances which do not reside in any locus. These are likewise excluded by the general defining characteristic. They can never be used as an upadi in any inferential context. The general defining characteristic being present somewhere and absent somewhere else is obviously itself present somewhere and absent somewhere else. Hence, it should be a property of itself. This is actually possible in a non-well-found property system like the one which I design in my book. According to the Upadhi Dharpana, a property's self-residence is by no means counterintuitive, whereas conservative Nayaikas and Navya Nayaikas regard any instance of self-dependence Sanskrit Afraya, as a kind of absurdity.
1: Your book has an extensive introduction, a synopsis of the text, a semi-diplomatic edition of the Upadhi and then an annotated translation. Why is it important for you to include the edition? Can you say a little bit more about the relationship between philology and philosophy?
0: Without philological scholarship, we would run into the danger of reading something into the primary sources, which is definitely not intended by the authors. Reliable editions and translations of the works of classical Indian philosophy are a conditio sine qua non for an appraisal of the robustness and momentousness of the contents from a contemporary philosopher's perspective. Such an appraisal of the contents might be the ultimate goal of studying the primary sources. This is actually what I am particularly interested in. However, the philological groundwork is not just some kind of chore which needs to be done before we can start with the fun part namely the interpretation of the texts. Even in the case of Sanskrit works which can be studied through secondary sources, reading the original ones is actually a much more fulfilling enterprise. It brings the tradition of classical Indian philosophy back to life. Directly engaging with the ideas of a thinker of the classical era of Indian philosophy is an experience which I would not like to miss, nor to share this fascination with the readers of my book, the philological
1: groundwork had to be included. Your translation aims to be more literal, as you put it, than some other translations. What are some of the challenges in doing this, especially for a technical text like this one?
0: My translation is primarily addressed to a Sanskritist who wants to read the Sanskrit text with the help of my translation. Tracking a translation can be rather difficult if it is fairly free. According to my experience, not much is to be gained from a fairly free, albeit smooth translation. Prima facie, you might get the impression that it is clearer than a literal translation. However, Navjanya texts are so intricate that reading the intended meaning from a smooth translation will still be a difficult task. A reader of my book who wants to study the Sanskrit text will appreciate to have a more literal translation which reveals the grammatical structure of the original. Analyzing the grammatical structure of a philosophical Sanskrit text can be quite challenging. The works of the Narayanayaikas are notorious in this respect. However, a more literal translation can result in formulations which may sound a bit clumsy. The terse nominalistic style of the Nadia Nayaikas is often an obstacle to an elegant English translation, which nevertheless preserves a good deal of the grammatical structure of the original. In the trade-off of a smooth translation against a more literal one, I decided in favor of the latter. I am aware that I did this at the expense of readability. However. I try to make up for it by adding numerous footnotes to the translation which contain readable paraphrases of the intended meaning of rather cryptic passages. Moreover, the line of argumentation in the Upadi Dharpana is expounded in a detailed synopsis of the contents.
1: Back to the big picture. What are the implications for reasoning? from the Upanidharpana. I'm thinking here about things like when we should refrain from accepting the conclusion of an inference and when we should conclude that an inference is bad.
0: Navya-Nayaikas are primarily interested in ampliative arguments. Deductive logic plays a role as well, but rather in the sense that deductive rules such as modus ponens or universal instantiation are tacitly applied. Deductive logic per se is not an interesting object of study for the Navya-Nayaikas. In this sense, the logic of Navianyaya differs from modern logic, which from its early beginnings has been preoccupied with the study of deductive systems. Only over the past few decades, modern logicians have become increasingly interested in a kind of common sense reasoning, which is closely related to the type of logic focused in Navianyaya. Nowadays, modern logicians, in particular those who specialize in AI, study all kinds of common-sense arguments, even very weak ones, which are based on a rule of thumb, such as Pollock's above-mentioned red-lights example. By contrast, the scope of common-sense arguments, which are studied in Navjanya, is rather limited. They are all based on rules of enumerative induction. This is the type of induction which is applied in the third member of a five-membered inference. Enumerative induction starts from the observation that all members of a sample X of A's are B's and makes a defeasible inference to the conclusion that all A's are B's, that is, to the pervasion of A by B. Enumerative induction needs to be distinguished from statistical induction, which may lead to the conclusion that most A's are B's. By contrast, a pervasion as the conclusion of an enumerative induction is a gnomic generalization, that is, an exceptionless universal generalization. An enumerative induction can be construed as a defeasible type of argument. The existence of a counterexample obviously rebuts the claim of evidential support as the prima facie reason for the pervasion as the conclusion. We have seen that the upadi's absence in the locus of the probands can also function as a rebutter of such a prima facie reason if it is conjoined with the background information that every locus of the probands where the upadi is missing is a locus of the probands where the probandum is missing. The conjunction of this rebutter with the background information entails the existence of a counterexample. So is a rebuttal by means of the Upadi-related defeater not a kind of detour of the redirect rebuttal by means of the existence of a counterexample, so that the Upadi-related defeater might be regarded as superfluous? I don't think so. The Navianayaikas seem to have realized that the defeater tells us something about strategies, how to ensure the reliability of an enumerative induction. The existence of a counterexample as a potential defeater tells us that the pervasion at issue should be supported by wide experience of positive and negative correlations of probands and probandum. The size of the sample is crucial for the reliability of an enumerative induction. The upadi related defeater tells us that we should be aware that a supporting sample might not be a fair one since the co-occurrence of probands and probandum might be owing to the presence of an upadi as an associate condition. Without the upadi, the co-occurrence of probands and probandum might be unwarranted. So the upadi-related defeater tells us that in order to ensure the reliability of an enumerative induction, one has to pay attention to fair sampling. The representativeness of the sample is also crucial for the reliability of an enumerative induction.
1: Finally, are there implications for philosophical debates based on this conception of the Upadhi? Inferences like inferring fire from smoke are not ones which primarily occupy Nyaya philosophers in their debates with other traditions like Buddhists or Mimamsakas. Would differing conceptions of Upadhis impact debates about, for instance, the existence of the self or the authorship of the Vedas.
0: The Upadhi Dharpana discusses an inference which plays a role in the controversy with Mimasakas and Buddhists, namely the following Yaya argument for the existence of a Hindu god. The earth and so on have a creator because they are products. The upshot of the argument is of course that the creator of the earth can be identified with God. Now this is not a full five-membered inference. Only the first two members are given. But we get to know the most important parts, which tell us what the remaining members should look like. The inferential subject is earth and so on. The and so on refers here to entities like growing grass or a big tree which are like the earth not produced by any visible agent. Being produced is the probands and having a creator or a causal agent is the probandum. The pervasion can be rendered as whatever is produced has a causal agent. Artefacts, which are produced by a visible agent, serve as agreeing instances. An example would be a pot, which is created by a potter. Eternal entities, like the ether, can serve as disagreeing instances. Udayana approves of this inference in his Nyayakusumanjali. Gangesha defends it as well, but he notices that it lacks precision. In his Tatvachintamani, he suggests some modifications in order to make it watertight. But this need not concern us here. I will rather talk about a Mimasa objection against the theological inference of the Nayaikas. According to the Mimasa caste, the pervasion in this inference can be vitiated by means of an upadi, namely being produced by an embodied agent, Sanskrit shariri janjyatra. Nayaikas hold that the earth has a creator who may assume a body for certain purposes, but is essentially bodiless. So from a Nyaya perspective, The non-pervasion of the probands by the associate condition is warranted in this case. The earth is a locus of the probands being produced, where the upadi is missing. However, everything which has a causal agent may or may not have an embodied agent. Both possibilities are apparently equally matched. A pot, for example, does have an embodied causal agent, namely the potter. The earth may or may not be a counterexample. Therefore, the pervasion of the probandum seems doubtful in this case. However, according to Gangesha and the author of the Upadhi Darpana, a dubious Upadhi can function as a vitiator as well. We have to recall that the Navyanayaka's way of resolving epistemic ties dovetails with the behavior of a skeptical reasoner who acknowledges epistemic ignorance and withholds belief rather than choosing randomly like a credulous reasoner. Thus, a dubious Upadi can vitiate in the sense that it mandates not to draw any conclusion. In order to secure the theological inference in Yaya, Gangesha tries to refute the purported pervasion of the probandum by the property of being produced by an embodied agent. The Upadi darpana pursues a different strategy. Since, according to the Upadhi Dharpana, an Upadi should also be pervaded by the probandum, the author tries to demonstrate that being produced by an embodied agent is in fact only an apparent Upadi, since it lacks the pervadedness property.
1: Is there anything we haven't said about the book which you think is important for our audience to know?
0: A word with regard to my formal reconstruction of the Navjanyaya logic of property and location might be in order. In my book, I design hybrid systems which serve to model the well-founded property concept advocated by early Nayakas and many Navya Nayakas on the one hand, and the non-well-founded property concept advocated by the Upadidarpana on the other hand. These systems are extensions of George Beeler's property theory T1. Since essentialist theories like Bieler's property theories seem suspect to many philosophers, one may wonder why I have not chosen a less controversial logical framework for my formal reconstruction. Lambda calculus, for example, might have been an appropriate alternative. However, lambda terms are extensional or intentional descriptions of functions, whereas Bieler's property terms denote properties as intentional metaphysical objects. Therefore, his approach has much in common with the reification of properties in Navianyaya. Moreover, the Navianyaya logic of property and location is also essentialist. Hence, it is appropriate to choose an essentialist theory for the purpose of a formal reconstruction of the Navianyaya logic of property and location. According to Matilal, Navianyaya essentialism need not be regarded as an embarrassment. Quote, Although Quine goes to the extreme in his rejection of essentialism, it was conceived in sin, he says, it should be noted that he allows for the sake of science what I would call some minimal form of essentialism. He calls it a respectable vestige of essentialism, which he would like to keep. It consists in picking out those minimal distinctive traits of a chemical or of a species or whatever that link it most directly to the laws of science.
1: What are you working on now?
0: I'm currently working on a new book, which will address readers without any special Indological background, including philosophers and experts on AI. The title will be An Indian Logic of Property and Location, Subtitle, Knowledge, Representation, and Reasoning in Navianyaya. In this book, I will show that the Navianyaya analysis of the objective content of a cognitive event in terms of their ontological categories, is an early attempt to address a problem which is known as knowledge representation in AI. Naviana actually analyze the content of every cognitive event in terms of a qualification relation between a property, the qualifier, and its locus, the qualificant. Surprisingly, they have found a way to pass the semantic content of questions and normative statements in exactly the same way. On the basis of their property location model, they even designed a theory of number which is akin to Gottlob Frege's concept of number. My book will also be about an aspect of the five-membered inference which I did not address in my previous book. The five-membered inference is obviously based on the interplay between properties namely the probands and the probandum, and certain loci, namely the inferential subject, the agreeing instances and the disagreeing instances. One of the main concerns of the Navianayaikas was to define the pervasion of the probands by the probandum in the sound inference. It can be rendered as every locus of the probands is a locus of the probandum. However, the Navianayaikas tried to find an equivalent formulation, which is in accordance with their commitment to analyze the objective content of a cognitive event in terms of a qualification relation between a particular locus and a certain property. Thus, conceiving of a probance as being pervaded by a probandum was basically understood in the sense that the probans is a locus of the property pervadedness, that is, being pervaded by the probandum, and this property had to be further explicated
1: by strictly adhering to the inventory of ontological categories in Navyanyaya.